And another reminder that Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. It gives you everything you need in one place, and it's free. You can use it right from your phone or your computer. They have creation tools, so you can record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. And they'll distribute your podcast for free. So you can hear it on Spotify, Apple, Google, and many more. Just like us here at BraveMaker. Make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So download the Anchor app today and go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks to our sponsors. Now back to the show. Hey, how you doing? Tony Gapastone here with you on episode 59 of the Brave Maker podcast. I'm wondering if you're holding up. We are hitting 30 days in shelter in place. This is no joke. This is not easy. But I'm hoping that with what we are putting out, as well as all the great stories and music and art and film and TV that are available at the touch of our fingertips, that you are finding some solace and inspiration to keep going. I hope you are. Let us know if there's anything else that we can do, ideas that you have, or people that you'd like to hear from on our podcast or on our live chats that are happening at facebook.com slash bravemakerfilmfest, please let us know. We have films that are coming out in our email on Mondays every week. And if you're not a part of that, go to bravemaker.com slash buzz, B-U-Z-Z, and sign up immediately because there's some really good stuff coming at you. In light of having our film fest in May, we are bringing everything to you virtually. So, hey, today... We have a really cool conversation. You know, I have another podcast called Holy Cannoli that is a podcast about faith and spirituality. My wife and I co-host that. And part of my other life, I guess it's not another life, it's one life that I have. I just have multiple tasks and roles and hats that I wear, is I'm involved in a faith community as a pastor. And I believe that stories are very spiritual with whatever you think about the afterlife or a creator or not. This life has a lot of transcendent experiences, and many of them come through things like art, film. And today we talk about music and the intersection of pop culture and the pop culture icon known as Beyonce in all of her fierceness. Beyonce, uh, I feel like I'm saying Beyonce weird. Beyonce, Beyonce, Beyonce. Beyonce and her music have been collided with in a very unique way through a woman named Reverend Yolanda Norton. And Brave Maker Ambassador Karen Saudel and I got to talk with Reverend Yolanda about the beginning of this movement. If you don't know what this is, sit back and take a listen. I want to say that um, I do these primarily, honestly, because I need them. I have these conversations for me. Uh, I want to put them out in the world, and I hope they inspire people and educate and bring awareness. But I I got chills once or twice as we were talking. I felt convicted. I was aware of my ignorance as a person from a Caucasian background. Uh, I have a lot of, un, uh, of biases. I have a lot of biases, things I don't really understand. Even in my, you can tell as I'm asking questions, I'm just careful to go, how do I not patronize or oppress someone who is in a position as a black woman, Yolanda, Reverend Yolanda, uh, who's being asked questions by a white man. And I'm just so grateful for her and for Karen 
in partnering with me in this conversation because subtle things like how we understand what it means to be a black person, let alone a black woman or a black trans person, and how we differentiate that in a global way uh, in referring to black people more than African-Americans, you'll see later in the conversation when I ask a question about that, honestly, for the first time hit me like, whoa, there are so many nuances to race that I don't understand and I want to get better. So I hope this helps you. Hope this helps you in your understanding of your art and your creativity or just being a human being and how we have conversations. So enjoy episode 59 with Reverend Yolanda Norton, the founder of the Beyonce Mass. Stories, scripts, and conversations with creators. This is the Brave Maker Podcast. So, yeah, I can jump to the questions or Tony, what you can, you can explain like who you are as well. Yeah. I mean, you kind of maybe remember I'm, uh, I'm a, I'm a pastor, but I also founded this nonprofit called Brave Maker that really is about stories, film, art, creativity, dance. And I know that that, you know, kind of encapsulate a lot of what, uh, Beyonce mass is about. And we created Brave Maker to really empower those unheard voices and lift and elevate those up. Primarily justice, diversity, and inclusion is a part of our mission. And Karen didn't say this, but she's also an amazing dancer as well as a follower of Jesus. So we've got all these cool connections going on. So yeah, so Yolanda, I mean, we'll just make it casual and kind of go back and forth and basically have you share about the whole vision. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds good. Right on. Cool. Well, why don't you just start, Yolanda? Why don't you start by just sharing about what the Beyonce mask is and how and why you started it? Um, yeah. So uh, I am a professor at San Francisco Theological Seminary, a womanist biblical scholar and ordained clergy in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And um, it was in some ways, I say that the Beyonce Mass was born when I first started in ministry. So I was 24 years old when I was first licensed to preach. Um, and it was a small Baptist congregation just outside of D.C. And um, I found that that as I, like in this area where I was, I was one of the first Black women to be licensed into ministry in that area. And what that some some of what that meant was that um, I got pigeonholed into like, can you come speak for Women's Day? Can you come because of my age? It was can you come speak to our teenage girls? And um, luckily for me, that's work that I love to do. But I always found that like the young girls were very nervous around me because the only image that they had of clergy were old black men. So they didn't know what they could say or what they could do. They wanted to be really interactive with this black woman who wasn't that much older than them, but they were uncomfortable and unsure. And so in particular, I was at this young girls retreat and I had just done these workshops. The young girls were super engaged and we got in the car and it was complete silence. Nobody wanted to talk. And I leaned over to one of the parents and I said, what's going on? And she said, they don't know what to do with you. Um, And I was like, so we don't get any music, no words, no nothing. 
And I said, well, can I play some music? And I put on Beyonce. And it was like the, the, the girls had just had this revelation of like, oh, you're clergy, but you're, hum you're a human being. We can talk to you. And so it was a point of connection. And so when I moved into being a scholar, I really wanted to use things that were personal because this is womanist work. Use things that were personal in thinking about how to frame womanist theology. Um, and so this class, Beyonce and the Hebrew Bible, was formed out of that. What's a different way to talk about how you frame biblical interpretation from a Black woman's experience? So we have this figure who everybody knows, who some people try to forget is a Black woman, but is unapologetically a Black woman. She's a mother. Yeah. She's a wife. She talks about her relationships, about her difficulties, about how she... Um, is trying to find strength in herself, what it means to be a person of faith. And so uh, she became a really good linchpin to, to have a womanist conversation. Mm -hmm. And so the first assignment for the class, I am a Bible scholar, but I love worship. Because I'm a preacher, I am called to think about um, how we use the Bible in public spaces. And so the first assignment for the students was let's plan a worship service. And, but you can't use hymns. I want you to tell black women's story in a Christian context using the music of Beyonce. So we did that as a chapel service at the seminary. And one of my students who was in that class was also interning at Grace Cathedral. So Grace Cathedral asked if we could come and do that chapel service in their midweek service. It was supposed to be 50 to 100 people because that's, that's what the normal attendance was. And we made that decision probably end of February and posted things on Grace Cathedral's Facebook page. And it just sat there without much attention for nearly a month. And then it was two weeks before we were going to do the Beyonce Mass at Grace Cathedral, that it went viral. And we ended up having uh, a thousand folks show up uh, for this worship service. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's the story. That's amazing. I think that's just, for, especially for something that just seemed like, okay, these are just ideas for my students. These are things to, to spark creativity as well as bridge that gap to make what spirituality and what we see in the church to be relatable and connect with everyday people. And I think that one of the things that is very prevalent, is like as a reverend yourself, like we don't get to see a lot of like strong black women taking that, that space of leadership, mm -hmm. which we do in, you know, in the pop culture or in the, you know, everyday life. Right. And so it's kind of tying that I think is very interesting because, um, we do need to have more of a representation to even reflect upon as far as like black women in the church and in that space of, of preaching, you know, like behind the pulpit, that's a huge deal. Yeah. And it's interesting. It has always been fascinating to me that you're seeing more and more black women go to seminary. And so uh, we are the fastest growing population of seminary uh, seminarians, but you're not seeing black women get positions in the church. So um, it's, it's really powerful for me. Like we did the mass in Lisbon a little over a year ago and um, 
to watch the black women who were our, our choir there uh, and other people who were just there as congregants say, oh, I've never seen a black woman preach before. Um, and how real that is, not just in Lisbon, but in the United States. So how much we're running into people who are just not used to seeing a black woman stand in front of them and, mm. and, and occupy sacred space, which for me is a consistent part of what I wrestle with because um, as a black female biblical scholar, there are just not many of us. There are maybe a couple of dozen black women who are teaching Hebrew Bible in the world. And so it's that same thing of like, what does it mean to stand in front of a group of people and, and deal with sacred text from a position of authority? I just want to comment on that. It's just so powerful. I'm kind of getting a little bit of chills just thinking about this work that you're doing. I love that you recognize it as sacred work. And, you know, as obviously as a white male, I'm very ignorant to what it is to be female, but also what it is to be black and female. And one of the things I want to have, maybe both of you can comment on this, but can you talk about in, you know, in black culture, black Christian culture, I know just a little bit of um, titles that are bestowed upon preachers. And I, I think the, the word first lady or the title first lady comes to mind as a way that women are bestowed, usually a spouse to a preacher. Is that right? And is that something that is, uh, problematic or challenging to kind of break into the space because women like in any race are kind of secondary and considered uh, always have to be under a man in some way. Any, anything you can share about that? I would say from my perspective, I think, I don't, I don't know that I think of the title of first lady is problematic. I think what you're finding in black churches is you will likely find more titles in black churches than in white churches. And some of that is because it was the only space and it has been the only space where black folks could find spaces for respect um, and honorability, right? When, when the white world right. give us any kind of authority, you could come into the church and you could be acknowledged for that. So I never want to take Absolutely. away from the way that people are honored in that space. And I think the, the black church has really across time has skirted around the idea of black women standing in power and authority. And uh, I, I would be very interested to hear what Karen has to say about this. But for me, the, the, the problem that we're having is not just black men, right? We often see black women who, um, who are in their own right powerful. So this is to Karen's point, who are doctors and lawyers and engineers who go to work and assume positions of power, but because it's some, something about the church makes them uncomfortable with other women standing in that power in, the, in this space. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just to tackle on top of that, thank you so much, Reverend um, Yolanda. It's, it's that same thing I was just speaking about before. It's like we don't get to see that many women and Black women taking that lead and that um, that position behind the pulpit and not only to like, Oh, pray for the tithing and offering, but actually to be preaching and sharing the word, what God has spoken through them on like on the pulpit. And I think that's one thing that you see in the Bible. It's like, 
when God told, you know, when Jesus told him like, Hey, go and tell the people that I have risen just, we just passed Easter. You know, he told women to delay that message. And I feel like a lot of the times we lose that. And, and I would say just in church across the board, like not only within the African-American, but I've gone to churches where they're more Caucasian based. Like you don't see women actually having the opportunity to speak. And the more that they're given that space, the more we can actually train our young ones to see that representation of how much power the voice of a woman, regardless of color, has to to share with the world. Um, so yeah, I think that I love what you were talking about as far as respect and and the church within the African American community. I think that was huge. Like I remember going to Chicago and like there was always like Reverend Deacon, his first elders, like all these titles where I'm like, oh, if I say something right, and I think for women it's so important. Like if they worked hard to get that title, give them that title. Like Reverend Yolanda, that like Reverend Yolanda is a big deal. And that's something you will not, you don't hear every day. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, it's one of the things that I say to my students, like we, uh, SFTS is, is a fairly informal environment, but I don't, I'm not on a face to first name basis with my students, Uh, regardless of what the rest of my faculty are doing my two things for my students is like, this establishes a boundary, right? We're not friends, I have friends. I got people I go and I hang out with and and I am Yolanda. That's not what we're doing here. We're doing something professional. And I have worked really hard to get to this space and you don't understand how hard it has been, particularly as a black woman and that and so this honorific is not just for me. This is not about my ego. This is about my parents and my grandparents and my great grandparents, right? Who wouldn't have been able to step foot on this campus, better yet to have been a professor in this space. And so absolutely, we're going to, we're going to acknowledge one another for where we are because there's a history here. It's beautiful. Yeah. Wow. If you're just tuning in, I'm Tony Gapastone with the Brave Maker Podcast, and I'm with my co-host today, Karen Southall, as well as the Reverend Yolanda Norton, who is the founder of the Beyonce Mass, and in just little three short years ago, has created a true two, 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 oh my gosh, two years. She gave me the two. <laughs> I was like, it's only been two short years since this started. So... Yolanda, can you talk a little bit about sort of the vision for this? I know you said it was just started as a really kind of a small worship experience. And uh, I love on your website, you talk about the services are about using Beyonce's life and music as a tool to engender positive, empowering conversations about black women. Mm-hmm. And, and can you talk a little bit about what that means to be a womanist worship service and kind of the vision of what you're hoping the future of this movement looks like? Yeah. So, um, I really see the mass as as healing space, right? And so um, we talk about the distinction between rugged individualism and traditional communalism, right? Uh, Rugged individualism being the kind of thing that lives in uh, US rhetoric and traditional communalism being a kind of womanist response to that, this idea that we value the pain, the suffering, the story, the experiences, the realities of the community over and against um, individual identity, 
that's what we're trying to do in that space. It's not about telling my story. It's about telling a range of people's stories. Um, we have this wonderful group of Black women that I, we call the Black Girl Magic Ensemble. They are lead vocalists. They come from Lisbon. Um, we, you know, trying to uplift their stories and talk about how they contribute to the community. We record testimony of Black women that we incorporate into um, the worship service. And the idea is to let people who have not been seen be seen and to, to talk about that visibility as God's work, right? So one of my... Um, the consistent lines, every mass is different, but one of the consistent lines that I use in the mass is, you are the thing that God had in mind when she looked out over the world and said, it is good, right? And so um, that looking, that seeing as a sacred moment for people who have felt erased, who people for people who have been seen and in their being seen, they have been wounded. We want to flip all of that on the on its head and provide healing space. Um, and I'm I'm always concerned about the ways in which the church asks people to be somewhat schizophrenic, right? Like come into this space and be what we have deemed as holy, which means don't be your authentic self. Don't say this. Don't like uh, you know from traditions I come from. You would never walk into church in jeans and a t-shirt. You would never, right? Like you have to look a certain way. You have to talk a certain way. And we want to get rid of all of that in the mass. Bring whoever you are into this space. Know that God sees you. We don't expect you to be perfect. Um, we just want to preach, teach, and profess a, a theology of liberation and inclusivity. So that's really the mission of this work. And so we're just going as many spaces as we can go to, to give that message and to, to be in a space where you, like, I don't, I don't go to churches normally where I see just as many people who are unchurched as I see people who are traditionally churched. And so to, to be there and see beloved community is healing and, um, give some kind of revelatory moment about God for those of us who are participating in the mass up front, as well as people who are in the congregation. Wow. That's huge. Um, just to share about what you were talking about as far as like inclusivity. I think that there's a lot of churches that have a lot of their mission statement, but don't put in who they actually are calling and allowing to be themselves there. Um, I actually have a sister who went to seminary and had to do her residency at different churches. And she searched for a while to find a church that was actually inclusive and that would allow, you know, LGBTQ community. And like a lot of these people who identify differently as what, you know, the regular Christian goers would be. Um, to finally like do her residency. And she found a place in Oakland and was able to do it. Um, but it was, it was, it was a struggle. It was a little, like, she had to really go and read individual churches, like mission statement for that. And I think that, um, what you're doing is, is not only, I think what it maybe originally, and this maybe you have, you could share a little bit about, but maybe originally, um, intended for black women. Do you feel like it spread across towards a different, like, um, individuals were able to gather that weren't only black women? No, I mean, 
it was always the intention. Like we're telling black women's stories, but this this kind of folk sentiment sentiment um, that has popped into womanist theology of like understanding that when black women get healed, the whole world gets healed, right? That was always the undergirding message of the mass, right? We're we are unapologetically telling the story of black women. And in doing that work, right, we're telling the story of black trans women and black women who are uh, gay or lesbian, black women from across socioeconomic strata. And so you can't, you, you can't, in the same way that honoring black women, we always think about this dualism. We are both black and we are women, but these black women also have all other pieces of their identity. This is all about intersectionality. And so for me, uh, if you're going to tell a liberative story, you have to be open to the way that God liberates all people. So this, this was never intended to exclude anybody. Um, I actually think it's a testament to what womanist theology can do, that when we're telling the womanist story, everybody finds space everybody sees themselves as welcome and i hope that it's a message to other communities particularly faith communities that you can honor who you are without negating who someone else is yolanda i love uh what you said about visibility is sacred work i think that's a really powerful statement to share this being visible, being who you are, that is sacred work. It sounds so simple, but it's really, really profound. And I think one thing I'm feeling, you know, as a, as a white man in a pastoral position, as well as in the arts, is this real conviction for the problems that I have been contributing to, right? The ways that I have taken uh, places and power from those who have not been able to secure those positions. And so I'm wondering, and that's why I think this is important. I need this work. I need to learn from you and others who are telling their stories and living out their faith in these ways. So I'm wondering what challenges you have faced. Uh, and I wonder if you could start with, you know, in, in simple ways, I know as Christian people, people of faith, uh, we often get really afraid of secular music, right? If it's not intended to be used in this spiritual way, quote unquote, people can get really hesitant and leery and downright, you know, um, defensive. So I wonder if you can talk about that and some of the other challenges you faced. Yeah, I mean, I think this, uh, doing this work, um, I have experienced, I've gotten the whole gamut, right? So I've gotten everything from like the hate mail, the death threats, um, to the the cultural appropriation and the erasure right so that you know the number of times that i'll get an email that'll say like can you send me the liturgy you wrote because we um we don't want to like pay you or your team to do this work we we're just going to take what you did and mm -hmm. do it in our own space and like uh the the way that that's offensive in its own right but then on top of that to know like the number of time that's coming from white communities, particularly white men. And I'm thinking to myself, how, how are you equipped? Even if I gave you word for word what I wrote, how are you equipped to tell the story of black women? So right, like that kind of appropriation, the, um, um, 
the questions that get asked by some, because there are some people who want the mass, but they want the mass for all the wrong reasons, right? They want the attention, the the, the kind of glitz and the glamour. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah, we want to do this, but like, do we have to have black women? Like, does it, do we, right? And they're like, well, that's what the mass is about, right? So yes, you do have to, um find the black women who are in your space who we can interview and talk to and if you if you either don't have those women what kind of self-reflection do you need to do about your community um if you have those women and you're afraid for someone from the outside to talk to them you don't need to do self-reflection you've done the self-reflection you just don't like what you see right so you 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 have all kinds of um, things on that end of the spectrum to uh, folks who, um, you know, have have called this a cult, have called me a cult leader, have uh, sent death threats. And, you know, uh, I joke about these the death threats because I think, you know, like the, there are death threats in Jesus's name. And I think, oh, I think you've missed the point. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> You might think I've missed the point, but I really think you got it wrong. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it runs the gamut of of hostility, pushback, erasure. Uh, and I we try not to give that those things too much weight or attention. You know, that kind of when you talked about just a little bit of the hate mail, a lot of things that were coming. And I love that question, Tony, like in regards to a lot of the obstacles that come with projecting something that is very secular, but also tying that into Christianity. You know I mean? Jesus didn't just go hang out with all the priests and all the stuff like that. Like he was creating things to bring people and relate to them and talk about real life stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like what doesn't get talked about enough is um, how we always try to, to bridge and fight for, you know, justice and, and um, get rid of racism and a lot of these things that we're building just within like social issues, but we don't talk about how there's still segregation within the church and mm-hmm. how they're still like, oh, gospel or that type of worship or oh, we don't worship like that here. You yeah. know what I mean? That this is more our Caucasian style. And we see that, you know, even when we're listening to like radio stations of music, we're like, oh, don't they ever play that one song? I really like that one song. Or, you right. know, it's, it's very catered to particular type of people, you know? Um, so do you feel like some of that is what a little bit of the friction that you're finding within what you're doing with Beyonce Mass? Yeah, I mean, I th- um, when I talk about this kind of thing of beloved community, again, part of what appealed to me about Beyonce, like, you know, everybody was like, oh, but what she wears and, you know, what this lyric said or what that lyric said is that, number one, she's telling her authentic story, right? She's very honest about what she's going through in her music and when she talks about her music. Um, But also the sense of everybody knows who Beyonce is, right? Like uh, whether or not you know all of her songs or you like all of her songs, you know who she is. And so the way that, and her repertoire is so diverse that you get things that are very rock pop to things that are very hip hop, right? And so the ways in which that draws people in 
Um, and so we are getting this very diverse um, population of people mm, who are finding those pieces in various aspects of the worship service is, is a large part of what's compelling to me about uh, this work that we're doing is that it it is desegregating worship. I like that. I think it's cool. I remember, I mean, I've, I didn't really grow up in a faith home. I started following Jesus at like a teen age, but I remember in my own way trying to connect with music, right? There was like the DC talks of the time and, you know, all of these versions of bands that were out there. But I remember I liked a lot of music that wasn't in that space, but I always found like myself singing those songs and envisioning my connection to God. Like you talk about how, you know, Beyonce might've been writing this you know, tour for about Jay-Z or about herself, but we can take these songs and connect to God. I love that. I wonder if you can talk like flaws and all, I think is one, like talk about that a little bit. I think, cause I like that. Yeah. I mean, so when, when I talk about flaws and all it's, it's, um, it is like, she might've been talking to Jay-Z. She might've been talking to her fans when she says things like, uh, I'm a train wreck in the morning, I'm a bitch in the afternoon, right? Like, but how many of us can can turn that to a prayer to God, right? Like, we, I don't, I'm often a train wreck in the morning. I have a high <laughs> bitch in the afternoon. Um, and, and like, that, right, where she says, I don't know why you love me, and that's why I love you, um, really feels prayerful to me. That like there's n this revelation that there's nothing that we can do. Um, nobody's perfect, and some of us are farther from perfect than others, self included. And the fact that I feel God's palpable love, that it's pervasive, um, that kind of grace and salvation that sits with me every day. To hear that in that song. Um, is really powerful for me. And that that's the one song we do in every mass. And we usually do it with communion. But even um, we were recently, our, our last mass was at the Kennedy Center. Uh, and it actually ended up being one of the last things that the Kennedy Center was able to do before things shut down for wow. the coronavirus. So it was International Women's Day. Uh, it marked, it was like the, at the end of when Black Girls Rock was happening in, uh, at the Kennedy Center, there was supposed to be this whole cross currents cultural festival. And so the mass kind of set in this unique space. And the festival wasn't able to happen because of the coronavirus. And when we got to DC, because we, you know, we were just stepping into this, like, oh, what is coronavirus? They said, well, you can't do communion. Um, it's too many, too many hands, too much danger. Um, and so for me, part of the, I mean, I'm disciples, my denomination, every time we worship, we do communion. But part of the other reason that we, we always do communion is because for me, that's the most, um, participatory, uh, theocentric moment of any worship service, right? So we want to kind of name that grace. Well, we couldn't do that. So we had to write this alternative liturgy. Uh, and in writing the new liturgy, I said to our soloist, uh, Melitza, who um, always does this song for us in the mass, I said, listen, I need you to do the first part of the song a cappella. Um, 
because I, I more than ever, I just wanted to sit in this space as prayer. And afterwards, the number of people who came up to me and were like, without music, without anything behind it, to just hear those words made me wept, made me weep because of how palpable it is um, to just hear someone say like, I don't, I don't know why you love me, God. And that's why I love you. Um, so that's the kind of work that we're doing. And the songs, we, we run the gamut, right? Like that mass, we started, um, oh, now it's, it's escaped me. It's been a month. Um, <laughs> but the, I, the second song we did was Heaven. And we paid tribute to, we had pictures of Black trans women who have been killed. Mm. Um, and at the end of the song, uh, we had a prayer and the prayer was a prayer of repentance. We were repenting to God for all of the, the black women who this earth could not hold because of our racism, our sexism, our, uh, cisgenderism, our heteroaggression, right? Um, and so that kind of ability to take these this range of songs and turn it into God language feels authentic, right? Like the, part of what we're saying in the mass is we don't have the, the authority to dictate what God can use and how God can use it. Mm-hmm. We all up to God and, and know that God has the capacity to use that. Wow. I mean, that makes me think, because you were talking about how like some people were responding to the fact that you couldn't do communion and the way you had to kind of change up a couple of things to really just like follow the spirit in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can you share just like a few, maybe like one or two testimonies um, that you've gotten from a lot of the people that have been coming and just what gives you a little bit more of that boost to continue to pursue your goals in this? Yeah, I mean, I think the testimony is the, the only reason we, we're still in this game, right? So to hear, um, you know, after we were in San Francisco, there was, I mean, to this point, there was a white gay man who wrote an op-ed for the San Francisco Chronicle who said that, like, he had given up on God because he had given up on the church because he had been so wounded. Um, and he went to the Beyonce Mass and he found God. Right? Like he didn't know what he was going to do with the church, but because there was this different theology, there was this different kind of God language, he was able to re-engage God. Um, and so the number of people that we get coming to a Beyonce mass who are like, I haven't been to church in 10 years, I haven't been to church in 20 years, I haven't been to church in 30 years, but I needed to be in this space and I thought I needed to be here for one reason, but I've found something completely different here. That is what will keep you doing the work. So it's 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 those testimonies. It's testimonies. I'll never forget when we did um, the LA Mass. This uh, the mom of this five year old little girl came up to me and said, like you could see the daughter just standing off to the side, and she said, my daughter just she just really wants to meet you. And I just remember like crouching down um, and, and asking her what her name was and what she wanted to be and being able to say to her, you are the future. Like the, the capacity of humanity is in your spirit. 
right? So do dream as much as you want. Leap when people say that you can't leap. Um, and watching her face just light up in that conversation and to, you know, for her to, you know, say, can I give you a hug and to embrace this little girl and, and live in the hope and the prayer that that moment will mean something for her. Um, those are the kinds of testimonies. Those are the moments that keep us doing this work, regardless of what anybody says. So good. good. You're doing such important work reverend yolanda thank you so much you. i wanted to ask um and by the way yeah so if, you, if you're just tuning in and listening uh we're talking to reverend yolanda norton the founder of the beyonce mass and all of this important cultural work that she's doing uh, through empowering uh, the african-american woman through the life and the music of beyonce i wondered why the word mass because that's a really unique word to attach, uh, yeah. how did, how, tell us about that. I mean, the, the, it came out kind of coincidentally, right? So, you know, it wasn't the Beyonce mass when we did it at chapel at SFTS, but because we were going to Grace Cathedral, which is an Episcopal uh, church, and that's what they have is mass, that's how we labeled it and um, kind of moving out of that space um, we talk about the practicalities of brand recognition. That's what we're known as. But I also thought it was really important to have um, that kind of secular and sacred thing sit in tension so in the name, right? So like when we were leaving Grace Cathedral, it was like, well, should we change the name? This is our moment, our opportunity. I thought, no, I want people to know that they are coming to worship. This is not a performance, right? <laughs> because that's the inclination. People are often like, oh, we're going to go see this show. Like, this is not a show. Worship has performative aspects. And so we have things that are performative, but this is not a performance. This is a worship service. Um, I also think there are ways in which it, it pushes people who are in the secular realm to contend with Christianity. And maybe more importantly, it pushes the church to wrestle with the quote unquote world. And so uh, I really, I enjoy that tension that sits for people uh, in the name of it. My gosh, I love this. I think, yes, I was thinking in my mind, putting my marketing hat on for a second. I'm like, Beyonce Chapel doesn't work. Beyonce worship doesn't work. <laughs> Beyonce service doesn't work. Beyonce church doesn't work. But Beyonce mass, that tension, I mean, you're a great pastor and teacher. I could tell. Like, this was, that is so perfect. So, yeah. Thank you. So perfect. Um, and and I, well, the other thing I would want to say, because you said African-American, which we are telling African-American women's stories, but we're actually trying to tell Black women's stories more broadly. Uh-huh. So we, and I didn't always, I don't know that I've always done that well, or we've always done that well, but part of our Black Girl Magic Ensemble and having these seven Black women from Portugal, I did not know when we got invited to Portugal that... Um, uh, Portugal has one of the highest concentrations of Black people in Europe. Mm. And so thinking now about the global impact of colonialism and the ways in which these stories live in, in tension and community across the diaspora, I have, I have actually been asked uh, in the past uh, year, so listen, we want to bring the Beyonce mass. We could cut costs if we found local singers 
And I've said to them, well, number one, it compromises the mission because we have these, these, these black women. And two, we are a team. This is the community. So if you want one, you want all, right? Like I, I, I have uh, no interest in, in creating a cult of personality or having celebrity. This is about the us that shows up. Yeah. So that's cool. So are you saying, so in regards to the global movement now, like a, a black woman storytelling movement, is that the vision is to go like all around the world with this? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we've, we've been having initial conversations with uh, some places in Europe. We've been talking to some folks in Africa. Wow. Um, yeah. The, I don't know that that would, again, this was supposed to be a class project. So <laughs> we're kind of catching up with ourselves um, and we're, you know, having to have new conversations about what this means uh, in a COVID-19 world. But this is, there, there is a global mission here to, to talk about womanist liberation theology um, and to hope for healing space for folks in doing that work. Wow, that's amazing. I think a question that I have is like, because you brought up COVID-19 and like how everyone's like segregated and isolated and how do you, what are you doing or what's some steps that you've maybe changed within your approach to still staying connected with black women right now and still sharing that story and still keeping that, that momentum and energy going? Like, how does that look for right now in today's age? Yeah, so we've been we've been trying a couple of, of things. We're trying to strategize over the past couple of weeks about how to use Instagram, Facebook, things like that. So we're hoping within the next week or two to get some new um, kind of basic content out just to say, hey, you know, we see you, God loves you for people who feel isolated. Um, we're still trying to figure out what that means. We want to make sure that we're continuing to tell the story, that we're continuing to, to see folks in this world, maybe now more than ever, right? Because there are people who are, uh, you know, we're hearing these really positive stories uh, about, you know, people who get to be home and, and find rest and aren't so stressed. But the reality of the situation is that for some folks, that's a luxury that often we're talking about privilege. And I don't, I don't exempt myself from that. But uh, as I said to one of my colleagues yesterday, I am painfully aware that there are a disproportionate number of people who look like me, who do not have the luxury to be home. Um, the reason why we're having new conversations about black people um, having being exposed to the coronavirus at disproportionate rates is because it's black from the brown people who are the grocery store worker, the delivery truck drivers, right? And so they're, they right. are workers who don't get to stay at home um and so uh and that every house is not a home for folk so we're you know people are joking about the corona babies that will be born but i'm concerned about the folks who are in um violent situations child abuse mm. domestic violence and they're stuck at home with people in a tenuous situation and so we want to make sure that we are still speaking to as many of those folks as we can speak to right. and providing a message of hope that's not rooted in us, but rooted in God, because we have to deal with what, what do you do with God 
when the world around you is falling in. Um, and so we haven't figured all of that out, but we are definitely having the conversations about how to keep this message going when we as a team are scattered around the world and can't get to one another and we can't get to any one place uh, to do worship and we want to be responsible, right? Like I'm concerned about the number of churches who are ignoring the gravity of this and telling people to go to worship. We're, we're not going to do that. We want to be responsible and say like the beloved community means that even if you're not afraid for yourself, be concerned about the preservation of the life of your brother and sister who might be more vulnerable. Uh, so those are all a part of what, of the work that we're doing right now. Wow. That's good. Right. It's fine. No matter how many times like things happen to silence the voices of black women or black ministry or black, you know, it's like still keeping that, that strength and that, that courage and that ambition to continue pushing on beyond these walls of the coronavirus. So that's amazing. Yeah, you know, uh, I just think there is no limit to Black women's ingenuity. And so we're just trying to tap into uh, the ingenuity in our community to, to keep spreading this message. Wow. Yolanda, can you share, Karen, unless you have any, any other questions, I thought it'd be good to have, how can people find uh, Beyonce Mass and you, if there's wanting, because we were actually in talks with another church and some people from Stanford to bring you to Stanford campus chapel in September. I mean, I don't know if that's going to happen at this point, but what if people want to reach out to you? How do they find you? So we have the Beyonce Mass website, www.beyoncemass.com. We are on Facebook. If you search for Beyonce Mass, we have a Facebook page. We have Instagram. We're on Twitter. So we're, you can find us in all of the spaces. Um, the conversation about September is still tentatively there, but we all know what the world looks like. But we have um, set some backup dates for the spring semester. So um, we don't have anything that we have solidified as far as locations, but we are having conversations with folks around the world. And part of those conversations are, you know, if, if we, we haven't figured this thing out in the fall, um, how do we move to the spring? And we just want to make sure that for the, for us and the Beyonce Mass, that when whenever the doors are responsibly open for us to worship, that we are ready to worship with communities. Um, because as I said, I think people will need those hopeful, God-centered gatherings um, on the other side of this, maybe more than ever. Thank you. I absolutely agree. I mean, I think it, just one comment I think I would say, and, and one one story that you said that was just very um, touching, I think when you were talking about the young five-year-old girl that came up and like wanted to say hi to you, wanted to meet you and hug you, you know, and I think that's really beautiful because we have a lot of people who are at this level in our um, in our secular music or in the world in general, which I love Beyonce, I love a lot of other artists as well, but we're always seeing them in this life, and I feel like there's been such a momentum and a build and a growth of feminism and within like our black community, but we don't get to always see that in the spiritual side of things. We don't always get to see that in the church. We don't get to see that as far as role models that young, you know, black girls can look up and be like, yes, 
I want to preach the gospel like that in my communities, in my church, and around my friends. And I know the strength that I have within my in my voice that God's gifted me with. And seeing like people like you, Reverend Yolanda, like speaking with that type of authority um, on the pulpit is a powerful thing. Just to even be in that presence and to be able to even visualize it. So um, thank you for what you're doing with within your ministry. Thank you so much. It, it is it is a gift and a joy to be able to do this this work and to encounter all the people who are interested and invested in liberation theology and talking about how God is present in communities where we haven't always been willing to name that God is present. It's awesome. Thank you, Reverend Yolanda. Uh, we'll put all of those links in the show notes. And when the date goes live for Stanford and Palo Alto, California, it'll come out through BraveMaker and all our podcast links. And I had one more question. Has Beyonce ever thanked you or, or, or reached out or anything? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know that she uh, should thank me. I probably owe her a okay. <laughs> Um, But no, we, we haven't. And, you know, as much, I always say to folks, now, if I ever got a call from Beyonce, I would be very happy as an individual, as like as a fan, as someone who appreciates the the quality of her work, her vocal range, her brilliance, all of that. I, I love some black girl magic, but um, that feels selfish. This work, uh, we don't want to erase Beyonce's brilliance, but this work is about telling black women's stories and more importantly about telling the work, telling the story of how God moves in the world. And so um, we try to avoid the celebrity aspect. <laughs> That's good, yeah. Possible, yeah. That's cool. And this sounds weird to say, but I feel as if God thanks you though. God thanks you, God sees you and sees this work. And we need more innovative and creative ways for people to express their faith and to tell stories and to tell and mar- and empower these distinct people, these beautiful creations, these black women that you are partnering with and serving and the trans community. It's awesome. I'm really honored to know you and thank you so much for joining Karen and myself to share the story. I hope more people continue to know about this and get touched by your work. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for making this space. It was great having a conversation with you both. Yeah. All right. Cool. All Thanks. right. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for having Yolanda. Stay healthy. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. It was an honor. Yes. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Brave Maker podcast. Subscribe, give us a rating, and share with a friend. Brave Maker is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our work is funded by generous patrons like you. Support the podcast with a tax-deductible donation at bravemaker.com. Want to be social? Find us on Twitter and Instagram at bravemaker.com. Inc. Brave stories change the world. You are the story.